Welcome to the Biofilm First podcast. Today, we're talking with Dr. Katherine Kirkland, who is the principal investigator in the Kirkland Lab at the Center for Biofilm Engineering, housed at Montana State University. Dr. Kirkland, who is an assistant professor in MSU's Department of Civil Engineering, focused some of her research on the use of biofilms in aerobic granular sludge as a means to treat wastewater. Today's host is CBE Director Dr. Matthew Fields. Kat, you work in the area of what we would consider beneficial biofilms at the Center Film at the Center for Biofilm Engineering. Uh, in particular in the area of of aerobic granular sludge for wastewater treatment. How does wastewater treatment typically occur in the United States, and what makes that process of aerobic granular sludge different uh, than uh, compared to what we do in the States, compared to what's done in other parts of the world? Uh, Thanks. Uh, First, I would say wastewater treatment in the U.S. is primarily at at a municipal level is conventional activated sludge, which means that we have bacteria who are responsible for removing the things from wastewater that we want to remove before we put the water back into surface water. And these are things like organics, um, carbon-based compounds from uh, your normal sources that you would consider uh, in wastewater, as well as nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus which cause problems in receiving waters and so we want to remove carbon nitrogen and phosphorus and so typically we have bacteria that float around in the water in these little um, tiny flocks they're just little um, suspended uh, clumps of bacteria and we have several reactors in in series usually that have different levels of oxygen and we recycle the flow around to make sure that all the kind of bacteria that help us remove carbon, nitrogen, and phosphorus have an environment that they like. And at the end of the process, the water is clean enough to discharge into surface waters. What makes granular sludge different and really, really cool, I think, is that the same bacteria that are responsible for conventional wastewater treatment in this um, system, they form little balls, so really dense biofilms. They kind of look like couscous, actually. Um, They're about that size, a couple millimeters in diameter, and all the bacteria are kind of smushed up in this slime in these little balls, and what's cool about it is that the oxygen and these different um, substrates can't really penetrate all the way to the center of that biofilm. And so you get niches in there where certain bacteria um, like to be at the surface, where there's a lot of oxygen, and other bacteria prefer to be more in the middle of the granule where there's no oxygen, but there may be different um, byproducts or substrates available. And what that does What's so cool about it is it lets us get rid of all these multiple reactors that you have in a conventional activated sludge system because every single little granule, you know, this millimeter scale ball of biofilm is like its own reactor system where it has 
all of the processes that you would find in a conventional activated sludge system in every single little granule. And that's super cool. It lets us um, take up much less space. Um, and we don't have to aerate quite so much. Uh, so it saves some operations costs as well. So in essence, the what you're calling the biofilm encapsulates what traditionally has been done as primary, secondary, and tertiary treatment. And now we're, we're changing the scale at which is that is done from large tank to micro scale and within a granule. Yes, exactly, exactly. Instead of having huge reactors where, you know, which are, you know, the size of buildings full of bacteria floating around with a certain oxygen concentration, now we have that same process in a really microscopic layer of a tiny ball of biofilm. And so now the process that you just described, we now refer to as aerobic granular sludge and was first reported some 25 years ago. And if, if correct me if I'm wrong, which I think was a, a Dutch uh, mm-hmm. discovery mm-hmm. in the Netherlands. What, why, why only in the last couple of decades did we start to, to realize this and think about this con, you know, treating waste in this way? And why did it take us so long compared to what's been done traditionally over a century now? Right. Activated sludge is over a hundred years old and for the longest time there wasn't much innovation there um wastewater doesn't tend to be a real high value high innovation uh, area we sort of take it for granted that we just want to do the minimum that we need to do and then we don't think about it too much um but there are a lot of places in the world where space is really limited where water quality is um very, you know, could be potentially at risk because of population and things like that. And so the Dutch are very good at um, innovating around water. Um, they're below sea level. They have a dense, densely populated country. And so these granules were discovered sort of by accident in other reactor systems. And then the advantage was sort of recognized and there was a lot of research to develop uh, well to understand what was happening and then to capitalize on it and um, these kind of systems because they take up much less space they are very advantageous in places where you can't just build on to your treatment plant Um, you can take the treatment plant that you have and modify it to use granules Um, and save a lot of space. And so we find these uh, granular sludge systems much more commonly in Europe. Do you think, but most of them are to more traditional wastewater treatment and certainly even an activated sludge. Space has not been a biofilm involvement in this country. But do you think with Um, with this advent in other parts of the world this granular aerobic granular sludge into the field that it's reinvigorated appreciation for biofilm and its application definitely definitely it seems like this this technology really came out of the lab and into practice you know around you know in the early 20 teens i would say and it, it seems like around that same era, there was a lot more um, innovation and development into all kinds of other biofilm-based wastewater treatment systems, different kinds of um, membrane bioreactors, biofilm carriers, um, 
other options in a lot many cases to retrofit existing treatment plans um, and capitalize on some of the things that biofilms are really good at which is creating these different redox conditions and retaining the biomass at a um, small scale at a small scale <laughs> yeah. yeah so even so let's say practice coming into play in um in the industry in the in the so now 10 years or so, say mm-hmm. a decade or so. Mm-hmm. What is still or what do you think are some of the big questions still for aerobic granular sludge and holding it back uh, that could potentially make it um, a larger fraction of the industry to incorporate this type of technology? I think in, in many ways, I mean, we know operationally how to run a reactor, how to run a wastewater treatment plant, to grow these granules, how to get them um, to do what we want them to do. Uh, so operationally, we know how to make it work. What we really don't know as well is um, why they grow this way. Um, there's a lot of bacteria in the granule that we don't know what they're doing, what role they play, how do they are they just free free riding and just you know tagging along and don't serve a purpose so there is potentially something in that microbial mix that we aren't utilizing that we could or that we could better optimize for um, some kind of side stream process also this is a this is a patented technology and so at this point um, other different biofilm systems as competitors because um, it is really cost effective and space things like that and so we have a lot of treatment plants in this country that are sort of nearing the end of their design lives or where our discharge standards have gotten stricter, particularly with discharging nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus. And so treatment plants have to meet higher effluent standards. And so what they have been doing in the space that they have had is maybe not going to cut it anymore and they need to upgrade their system. And so they're looking at what can we do to get better performance out of the facility that we have. And these biofilm systems are are a way to do that. And so part of the research is looking at how you can retrofit, how you can um, use concepts, if not exactly the same technology in a, in a different way. So do you, are you finding, let's say in a, in a, in a marketplace like the United States where space has not been limiting, but because of the, the exact reasons that you stated of different regulations, uh, changing requirements for release of nutrients and or aging infrastructure. Do you see a growing interest within the United States industry and market in this type of technology? Indeed, indeed. There's a, actually in Whitefish, one of the treatment plants that uses aerobic granular sludge was just built um, within the last year or so up in Whitefish in Montana. And um, the new treatment plant in Big Sky considered it as an option. Um, so, why, yeah. What? What? Why did they not? Do you know? Um, in the 
in the U.S., there's a company that has the license to um, to build and operate these treatment plants, Aqua Aerobics, out of um, Illinois. And basically, if if a municipality wants a granular sludge treatment plant, they contract with Aqua Aerobics to design and build and operate the treatment plant. So some some municipalities like that and others don't want to contract that way so I think in the at this point it's a lot of um, yeah deciding whether to modify what they already have or sort of um, enter into this relationship with with a company with a single company yep uh, you were talking about some of the, the still the questions that remain uh, within this field of aerobic granular sludge is it do we know anything about some of the key populations that are important um, or, and, and or the companies that have these licenses? Are they aware uh, of, of that information or is it is that protected by the, the patent itself? No. Well, the, the way the granules form, and this is, I should go back, I guess, is these are, these granules form from the same... Um, you can take activated sludge, like you would find in any conventional activated sludge plant, and if you put it in a sequencing batch reactor and operate the reactor under the kinds of conditions um, where you have uh, the dirty influent wastewater coming in anaerobically, that promotes uh, growth of slow-growing microorganisms who can take up the carbon in that anaerobic phase. These tend to be phosphate accumulators, and they help minimize the overgrowth of heterotrophs, which like to consume carbon with oxygen. And then uh, when we turn on, after the influent wastewater has entered the reactor, we turn on the air, and that causes a lot of shear stress as the um, bubbles rise up through the water and so the the flocks will bump into each other they'll become more dense um, and all these reactions that typically go on in a conventional activated sludge plant will occur with the oxygen present and then um, after a certain period of time for those reactions to occur we turn off the air and the heavy granules will settle really quickly but the flocks that are still light and fluffy, those will take longer to settle, and we can select for the heavy granules by starting to discharge the effluent while some of those flocks are still suspended. And so between an anaerobic feed, this shear during aeration, and then a selection pressure that favors heavier granules, we can make activated sludge into granular sludge. And so that we know how to do it. We don't know exactly all of the mechanisms that are involved and um, some of the really fundamental reasons why <laughs> some bacteria end up in these granules and some don't. And these operational conditions also do favor, um, like I said, they favor the phosphate accumulators because they can take up carbon anaerobically and then use it during the um, aeration phase to remove phosphorus. Um, 
So we want to keep a lot of phosphate accumulators. They make good, strong, sturdy granules, and they remove phosphorus. Quick tangent to, mm-hmm. to that, and I have another question, but but the, you brought up phosphorus then. Does aerobic granular sludge then become a good fertilizer? In theory, um, it could be a good fertilizer. It also tends to absorb metals. So um, the sludge, because it's retained in the reactor for a long time, it, so it, some of the same limitations. Some for of the same limitations. Yes, same limitations. And actually, extracting sludge or extracting phosphorus from granules, there is a good amount of research on that because um, being able to harvest that phosphorus from granules would be a really yeah nice <laughs> nice little value added thing for the sludge and it would help with the um, phosphorus depletion so that process that you just described on on even moving from a, a traditional activated sludge and forming then an aerobic granular sludge is it known on the assembly process of of what populations are enriched and which ones are left behind when you move from activated to, to granular we like to, um, as I said, favor the phosphate accumulators. There are also glycogen accumulating organisms which compete with the phosphate accumulators. They can take carbon up during the anaerobic phase, but they don't remove phosphorus. So we, we like to keep those in balance so that we get phosphorus removal. Our nitrifiers and denitrifiers um, we can retain the nitrifiers, which tend to be slower growing, and sometimes in activated sludge systems, we have to design the plant to have a really long retention time for cells so that we get nitrification. Not every conventional activated sludge plant removes nitrogen very well. Um, and so we have the benefit in these granules of being able to retain them in the reactor long enough that we get really good nitrogen removal and then we you know we have uh, regular heterotrophs that consume carbon as well but again we favor the ones that can take up carbon anaerobically because they just make denser heavier more compact granules the the uh, aerobic heterotrophs tend to cause filamentous growth on the outside of the granules and they become unstable and they don't settle as well and so we get less performance that way so it sounds like then similar to traditional activated sludge where the filamentous organisms can be problematic the same holds true for aerobic granular yes yes when we get loose and fluffy floaty granules then the process sort of um, degrades a little bit because we have to um, they settle more slowly. Yeah. They get discharged with the effluent, so that's a. We like to keep them nice and firm. And Once compact. that, if they start to show up, is it is there is there how much is known about reversing their appearance and getting rid of them? Is that I know in some that's certainly a case in activated sludge. Can you do that as well in aerobic granular when they when they make an appearance? Yes, and certainly in a lab reactor, we have a lot more control over those sorts of things you can um, change your cycle times 
um, you can increase change your carbon concentration and the influent and things like that. In full-scale plants where you don't have quite as much flexibility and certainly you don't get to choose the concentrations of things in your influent in the real world, that just is what it is from the wastewater. Um, there are operational um, levers that can be pulled, so to speak, but certainly in a lab-scale reactor, we have much more control yeah. over those kind of things. But it really then becomes an, a, a question of, of biofilm invasion, right? In, yes. In, what, in, the, in a population yes. assembly into forming these communities and stable communities. Yes, and and really the, the, the tools that you have are uh, settling times, how long do you let things settle, um, cycle times, things like that. Yeah. So then that brings, like, so where is where does your research lie? What do you focus on and go after within this, this topic of aerobic granular sludge? Well, my f- focus has evolved over time. I started studying these granules during my PhD where I was working in the magnetic resonance lab, and I did some MRI, very high field um, magnetic resonance images of granules, and they showed this really complex structure on the inside of the granules um, where there looked like there were some really dense regions, and then it looked like there were some voids where there was nothing in the granule. And these didn't correspond visually, spatially, to the kind of layers that we expect to see where we have aerobic microbes at the surface and um, other bacteria towards the center where there's not so much oxygen. And so it didn't look like I expected it to look. And so it made me really curious about what we were actually measuring with MRI, which is sensitive to water and the mobility of water in the biofilm structure. And so um, it made me really curious about the EPS and what's actually um, what we were looking at. And so in order to get funding to study granules in this country where wastewater is not particularly well-funded in terms of research, um, I started looking at micropollutants in wastewater, things like pharmaceuticals or uh, PFAS compounds, which are these forever chemicals that that um, enter wastewater through a lot of consumer products and things like that. Real, real quick, I want to jump in. And so one, uh, for our listeners, MRI, what does that stand for? MRI is uh, magnetic resonance imaging, and it is... Very, it's the same as you would have in the hospital if you wanted to have a brain scan or you tore your ACL and needed to look at some soft tissue. Um, it's sensitive to water. And so in, in essence, then we can think of a microbial biofilm as soft tissue. Soft tissue, yes. It's, um, it's composed of water and uh, polymers, which also have hydrogen protons on them, which is what NMR is, MRI are detecting and the signal that we get the signal that we see in an image tells us a lot about the environment that the water is experiencing during that measurement and so we can infer things about structure and um, the 
mobility of water and things like that from an MRI image. And, and, I, th- and I think when people hear microorganisms and microbiology, they think about microscopes and we're looking at, at tiny cells. What does the MRI allow you to see or how you see things differently than what would traditionally be done with a microscope? Exactly. That's a great question. We, I have used microscopy on these granules, but it's at a completely different scale. So the MRI, the image, I can see the whole granule, so the whole several millimeters um, in diameter, and I can see it without doing anything to it. So it's a whole live intact granule, and I put it in the instrument. I don't have to cut it. I don't have to treat it or do anything to it. But just like you don't slice your head open when you have an MRI on your brain, you don't have to cut these open either, and you can see slices through them without disturbing them. So the spatial resolution is much um, less than you would see in a microscopy image. Um, We can't see individual cells. We can't see individual polymers or the components of um, of the granule specifically. But we can detect um, when when there are different materials present. Similar to similar to what an MRI might, if you get an MRI scan and you're looking for different properties of your tissues and say looking for cancer or, or right. non-cancer. Right, a tumor looks different than the, the 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 tissue that you would expect to see, and so in these images of granules, we can see some areas that are really dark. Um, In these dark areas, we expect that those areas have a lot of cells because uh, actual cells really um, increase the contrast in these images, whereas areas that look really bright, we would expect that to be a place where there's more free water or where the biopolymers that are present don't really inhibit the water model molecules from moving around very much. And that would suggest that there's not very many cells there or that the structure of the biofilm is much less dense. And that brings us back to then the voids that you mentioned. Right, exactly, exactly. We it, This granule kind of looked like Swiss cheese. It had looked like it had holes all the way through it. Um, and then this very dense dark layer at the surface and in some microscopy images you see some features that look like that but um, you know if you were to take one of these granules from a full-scale treatment plant and slice it with a razor and look at it with your eye it looks solid it looks really dense they're very firm Um, and so it just really didn't look like I thought it would look so what do you think that means? <laughs> well, uh, we I did have a student working on um, contrast in these um, MRI images, and he made um, fake granules from model uh, polymers. So we, we took um, Alginate, which is a model for one of the EPS polymers that's been extracted from real granules, 
And we made little beads out of alginate and imaged those. We did the same thing. We added some uh, with a different polymer that's a model for one that's been extracted from uh, granules. It's called granulin. And so um, these two um, polysaccharides, they form gels. They're very firm. Um, But they have completely different behavior in the MRI. So alginate um, looks really dark, and if you increase the weight percent, it gets darker and darker, and it looks more like these dark regions in the granules. Whereas the other polymer, gelin, which is a model for granulin, didn't. It looked like there was nothing there. We had a three weight percent gelin bead that looked like it was just pure water. So that made me think. Well, maybe some of these voids are not really just water at all. Maybe they're some polymer that that doesn't inhibit movement of water. And so uh, we also found that protein, we added protein to our alginate bead, and it looked more water-like after we added a lot of protein, which was also counterintuitive. And so um, it made me think differently about these images that I saw that you know maybe they're not voids maybe they're just places where certain parts of the EPS has been consumed by the bacteria that are there or um, maybe they're places where bacteria certain kinds of bacteria are are making different polymers that are um, you know who knows what they're doing why they're there it just makes me really curious so there's a lot of so when you think about microbial biofilms, a lot of people think about this extracellular matrix, this mm-hmm. this milieu of of macromolecules that are on the outside of the cells. And this this granulin sounds very intriguing. I mean, what do we do we what do we know about it, or what do we not know about it? Is it is it made by a single population of cells? Is it a is it a compilation of material that comes from a lot of different organisms? What what do we know? Um. I am not certain about all of those things. I know that it was extracted from real granules. Um, it exists um, in some proportion, probably in many granules. I'm not sure if it's specific to granules that are grown on particular substrates. Um, and it is a gel-forming uh, polysaccharide. It has been studied and um, structure has been identified, but I I am not entirely certain that gelin is a great model for it. You know, th- there's always when you when you take some real polymer and make use a model to represent it, there's always some loss there. But uh, it's very interesting to me and I am curious about how the granulin versus the well the polymer that ale or that the alginate is a model for is called ale alginate like exopolysaccharide and um, that one has actually been extracted and is now um, called calmera and it's also been used to like waterproof concrete it's a fire retardant you can make jewelry out of it i mean there's all kinds of polymers potentially in these granules that could be extracted and used for other 
other purposes. So I think that's pretty cool. I mean, this is sort of the whole uh, waste to resource question. And again, the Dutch are leading the way on figuring out how we can use this waste product. Do you think that there are additional polymers out there in these types of environments or processes that we don't even know about? Oh, I'm sure there are. And that's one of the things I'm really curious about. I, um, I'm curious about, well, backing up, it's pretty hard to identify and extract all the polysaccharides that could be made by any of these hundreds of kinds of microbes in these granules and to identify who's making what, under what conditions, could we, uh, you know, if there's something that we wanted more of, what would we do to get more, a higher percentage of that in this granule? Um, so I, that question is probably, a, <laughs> that's a huge one that is, that I don't know that we're anywhere near close to answering that one, but it's a very interesting question to me, and I can't imagine that there's not more in there. Yeah, I would imagine, given the biodiversity of microbes, and right. most of those microbes are probably growing biofilm, and right. we study very, we just have had little opportunity to study all of them under the right conditions, and who knows what they could or could not be making. Exactly, exactly. We've, to, the, to this point, as far as I know, extracted two polysaccharides from these granules that um, we can identify they form the gel. Not all the polysaccharides are gel forming, and so then there's... The that distinction. I think well. that's a great example of just un- uncovering some of the unknowns, right, about biofilm right. and what they and what they're capable of. Right. So then, back to your research in the, in this this discovery of these voids in there that was surprising to you. Uh, how do you think this relates then to the properties of the granule itself, uh, particularly in terms of of buoyancy, right? Because this mm-hmm. is this. This has an impact on the distribution of that biomass and how where it's at in the water column in relation to the oxic and oxic and the and the nutrients and how they're processing that you mentioned. How does it relate to buoyancy and how does it potentially relate then to mass transport? That's a great question. And and one of the things that I did with the MRI was compared granules from different treatment plants and from lab reactors. And so while most of the ones from full-scale real wastewater treatment plants had these voids. There were certainly some treatment plants where they were much more likely to have many, many void, what I'm calling voids, these bright spots in the image um, that were pretty evenly dispersed throughout the granule. And then other treatment plants had maybe one large void or they were distributed differently or there were not as many. The lab granules that we grow here in the CBE have very little void space. And I don't know if that is a, I suspect it's probably because of the carbon source. We have very simple uh, acetate carbon feed here. Um, Whereas wastewater has, you know, any number of unknown things in it. And so these uh, full-scale granules, yes, they have more void spaces. They tend to be larger, but they also are really, really robust. Um, They're very sturdy. They last for a long time, even in the fridge in storage. 
Um, whereas, you know, in the lab, there's a lot of literature and talk at conferences about, you know, trying to grow lab granules with complex substrates and how they fall apart and you can't get them to granulate and things like that. And and it, it does kind of boggle my mind because we know that it works in practice in the real world. We feed them whatever goes into the sewer and they make these big robust granules that that do all these (laughs) amazing things but when we try to do replicate a little more complexity in the lab it's it's really hard to get the granules to stick together and and do their job (laughs) we're taking it we're making it too easy for them in the lab i know it's it's really funny so i don't have a great um one-to-one answer about that um there, there are a lot of theories about these void spaces and whether they are a sign that the, the granule has kind of gotten old and inactive and is it ready to break apart and form new baby granules or, um, you know, where do you waste granules from the reactor because they're constantly produced and we need to maintain a certain level of biomass in the reactor. So do you take out... You know, where do you remove granules um, once they've settled the, the heavier, bigger ones or some of these that have more voids? It's, it's a, there's lots of potential research questions there. No, it's a great example. <laughs> it's a great example of applied system where, where a, an understanding of biofilm dynamics mm-hmm. could, could really mm-hmm. benefit a, a, a lot of processing here, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we all exactly. have ways to deal with. And I think it would be beneficial if we understood this better. Given studying these aerobic granules, what have you found uh, over the last several years as some of the primary challenges in studying them? Uh, one of the initial challenges that I faced was the just the reactor systems are much more complex. There's... Um, quite a lot of integrated systems that have to come together in order to operate these reactors because they do run in cycles, you know, where we have um, pumps um, injecting the influent synthetic wastewater. We have air pumps come on partway through the cycle, and we're trying to hit a target for dissolved oxygen in solution, and so we have to be able to monitor that. We have to be able to um, adjust the air flow rate and the nitrogen flow rate to get that target dissolved oxygen. We want to control the pH, so we have acid and base pumps. Um, Then we also have to have an effluent pump to pump things out and a timer to keep track of it all, and we have to measure the dissolved oxygen, of course. And so you end up with all of these different um, components that have to talk to each other. Data has to be collected and fed back and responded to correctly. And it has to run 24 7 mm. for months on end to do any of these research, uh, these um, types of research questions. So, logistically, there's just a lot going on and it's um, complicated to make everything work <laughs> the lot, way you want it to. A lot of moving parts. Lots of moving parts. And so, that part's hard. Um, the other thing that's challenging is, um, as I mentioned, this kind of research and these kinds of uh, granules are not especially common in the U.S., and so there's not a huge 
research community in this field here. And I also started this um, in my new faculty position right before COVID. So COVID happened right at the in the first year of this work. And so, you know, being able to go to conferences or make um, build up relationships with other people in other places and keep my finger on the pulse was pretty pretty hard in that first couple of years of, of trying to get this off the ground. Now, I don't want to give the impression that I did this all by myself. I had some fabulous help. Um, I feel really blessed. I have a longstanding relationship with Marilla DeCrook at TU Delft, and she's been such a big help in getting me set up. And then on my first PhD student, Kylie Bodel, is just a wizard with the reactor and operations, and together we we made it through COVID and got everything off the ground. I think all of us found that how how dependent we are upon those interactions and sharing of knowledge and how that cross feeds and advances the fields. And I think that was all impacted by by COVID, something like COVID, and our inability to to communicate and we had to communicate in different ways. Yes. Right. And and there is certainly things lost in translation when you can't communicate face to face. And going to conferences and just seeing what other people are doing and and hearing like, oh, you've had that problem with your reactor too. Yeah. Um, it's just nice to have those sort of spontaneous conversations. That's and, a very good point, right? Yeah. Because we cer- we certainly do not we we typically do not publish our negative results. We do exactly. not publish what doesn't work, but we certainly are able to share that. Uh, when we talk with each other and meet at at meetings, exactly. So that kind of stuff, the the troubleshooting, the uh, you know, I'm sure we went through the same steps that so many other groups have gone through in getting this reactor all started up, and and you know, perhaps could have avoided some of that had we hung out over coffee during yes. a poster session or something. Now, yeah, I want to come back to a point you mentioned in. In a couple different ways, that traditionally the United in the United States we're still dependent upon a historically used activated sludge, and so this there's not a lot of research dollars right for R and D to advance this field. Uh, if you and hopefully that's going to change, right? And I mm-hmm. and I think we're hopeful as we think as our society moves towards a better recycling and reusing our water and reusing our nutrients that I think this type of technology really plays into that and plays a part in that. If you ha- if funding was not an issue, what what would you go do right now if if you had unlimited funds and you wanted to really tackle some big questions in this field, what would you go do? Well, what I am really curious about given that we um don't know everything that's going on inside these granules and what everyone is doing and how they contribute. I get really curious about what other granules could we make? You know, could we make, could we, you know, collect some consortium complementary bacteria to solve some other problem and grow them in a granule? Could we, could we produce products that we wanted if we could grow certain consortium bacteria together or is is the carbon nitrogen phosphorus from wastewater is that 
like a key component of this. Could we, do we have to have wastewater to make granules? Yeah. It's a, that, that, I don't know. That is just really curious to me. It's not a very succinct research question, but I'm really curious no, but about it. Like this form of a biofilm is a very interesting because of all the redox zones, because it is, um, easy to separate from water, easy to harvest. You could extract something from it if... uh, No, you raise a really good point of this was under our noses for, you know, again, we we use traditional activated sludge for over a a century, and only for now, you know, a couple decades we find this. What else is out there that we don't know? What else could we engineer granular biofilms to do for us? To do. Yeah, they... um, there must be other things. I just, you know, I don't know the process yet that we would want them to try to do or what kind of, yeah, organic product they could make. That, But that, to me, I'm just, I know there must be something. I just... <laughs> I, I, hope, I hope you get that opportunity. So I, that, thank you for talking to us about your work in aerobic granular sludge. I wanted to give a few moments because I know so also know you're involved in... There's a, another, a, a whole area that's been developed at the Center for Biofilm Engineering in microbially-induced precipitation events to, yes. to, to use those in different environments. And I know that you've been involved with some of that work. Could you tell us a little bit about that, that what you've been involved with? Yes. Another beneficial biofilm that I, is close to my heart is uh, made, formed by Sporocercina pasteuri, which is a urealytic microorganism. And in the presence of urea and calcium, this microbe can induce precipitation of calcium carbonate. And what we've been able to do in the field and in the lab scale is um, inject solutions of this bacteria and um, basically fertilizer for the urea source and ice melt for the calcium source. And we've injected these solutions down leaky oil and gas wells and things like that in the subsurface. And essentially, we, meaning myself, A.D. Phillips, Al Cunningham, and Robin Gerlach, we've been able to grow new rock, uh, which we can use to seal these wells. And that is really pretty amazing when, when um, oil and gas wells get old, the cement between the the well casing and the the soil or the rock outside of it can get old and fail and there's cracks and then you have a direct conduit from the subsurface uh all the way to the atmosphere where these co2 or uh yeah methane and other greenhouse gases can escape and so being able to seal up those leakage pathways is really, really important for mitigating greenhouse gas emissions. I told my kid about this technology and that it's being commercialized by um, a company, BioSqueeze, which grew out of a CBE collaboration. But by now, they've sealed over 100 wells, commercial oil and gas wells in the U.S. and Canada. And I was telling him, and he said, Mom, that's fire, which I thought was an amazing compliment and, yeah, made my day. 
The Biofilm First podcast is a production of the Center for Biofilm Engineering at Montana State University. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved.